All right. Thank you, David, for leading us in that time of singing and praise. And now, dear brothers and sisters, it is time for our study of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at just three verses this morning, verses 15 through 17. So Exodus chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. I will begin by reading our passage this morning, and then we will pray over today's study. Exodus 21, verses 15 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning because I think we can recognize that we are all in need of your saving grace. We all live in a world that is tainted and affected by sin. Lord, there might be some things by your grace that have improved in our country and our culture over the years. But I believe we can also see quite clearly that there are many things in our culture that are going extremely bad. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would open our eyes to see around us not only personal struggles, but societal struggles, epic battles that we are facing in our culture. And more than that, Lord, we pray that you would grant us spiritual eyes to see what the ultimate root of all of these problems are, and that you would provide us with the only cure, the only salve that can fix these great problems we face in our world today. We ask for your blessing now over this time of teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1858, the great American president, Abraham Lincoln, delivered his famous A House Divided speech. And of course, Abraham Lincoln was drawing off of the very words of Jesus when he employed that metaphor of a house that is divided. And when Abraham Lincoln was using that quote, he wasn't meaning house in a literal sense. He meant house in a metaphorical sense. He was using that word house not to refer to a house with a mother and father and two children, but rather to the United States. Of course, the United States as a country was at war and it was divided against itself. The North against the South locked in the bloodiest battle in American history. But I wonder how shocked Abraham Lincoln would be today to find out that his words were not just metaphorically true, but literally true. Today, friends, we face not a nation divided, but a nation with houses divided. According to the 2019 Pew Research, they reported that out of all the countries in the world, the United States has more single-parent households than anywhere else. They said in their report, For decades, the share of U.S. children living with a single parent has been rising, accompanied by a decline in marriage rates and a rise in births outside of marriage. Our newest study of 130 countries and territories shows that the United States is the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. Almost a quarter of U.S. children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adults. More than three times the share of children around the world who do so at 7%. The study, which analyzed how people's living arrangements differ by religion, also found that U.S. children from Christian and religiously unaffiliated families are about equally likely to live in this arrangement. In comparison, listen, only 3% of children in China 
live in single-parent households. Only 4% of children in Nigeria live in single-parent households. Only 5% of children living in India live in a single-parent households. And even in neighboring Canada, the number is 15%, almost 10% less than the United States. Houses in the United States are more divided than anywhere else in the world. And perhaps partially related to this is even more a fundamental breakdown of respect and honor for parents in the home. Respect and honor as a cultural value has declined significantly. We can quote secular sources, non-believing sources, who have also observed this very thing. For example, Dr. Ronald Riggio, writing for Psychology Today in his article entitled Parenting and the Culture of Disrespect, Are We Raising Our Kids the Right Way, had this to say, quote, I came across a short interview of a pediatrician who has noticed changes in children's behavior over the past several decades. Most notably, he talked about children's lack of respect and how permissive parenting and our media culture has promoted it. My wife, who is an elementary school teacher, has also seen this change in her students over the years. Let me give an example. Students who are disruptive are seated at a desk in the back of the room for a timeout for a short while. At the end of the day, the teacher found the words, blank you, teacher, written on the desk. Of course, the child denied it, parents were called, and the parents immediately came to the defense of their child. He would never do that. He doesn't even know how to spell that word, the parent said. Yesterday, my wife reprimanded a child on the playground. As she turned her back, the child said, I want to kill that teacher. Sent to the office, the child's parents were called, but nothing really happened. No real corrective action was taken. A couple of days ago, a child on the playground was reprimanded, flipped off the teacher, and ran off the school grounds and had to be corralled by the local police. All of these children are not unruly teenagers or even preteens, but seven-year-olds. And listen to this. And this is a school in an affluent upper-middle-class upper neighborhood. As my wife has said, none of this would have happened even a decade ago. My own observation, even as a Christian working in a private Christian school, I was shocked to see how many Christian parents would deny the sinfulness of their kids. They would refuse to take any responsibility to set proper boundaries around their kids' behavior, to point out to them what was right and what was wrong, to require them to contribute and to help in any meaningful way to their family or to their community around them, and chiefly when their children would disrespect and dishonor them, that many Christian parents would do nothing about it. What in the world is going on? We live in a culture with houses divided. Now, I want to point out to you how we could not be perhaps more opposite than the culture of ancient Israel. As we turn to our text this morning of Exodus chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, I think we see before us a, a troubling text in one sense, but in the exact opposite direction of the challenges that we face as a culture today. So let's look at how different the culture was in ancient Israel, and let's explore what God may want us to do as we move forward today. If we look at Exodus 21, 15, 17, we see three different case laws. Remember, we've called these casuistic laws. So remember, these various laws that you're going to encounter in your Bible reading, as strange as they might be sometimes, as harsh as some of the penalties will seem at times, remember, the thing to keep in mind is all of these are rooted in the Ten Commandments. 
So the more you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, I encourage you to memorize the Ten Commandments. They are an interpretive key for you as you go through the many laws of the Old Testament. And what you can ask yourself is which of these Ten Commandments is this case law seeking to implement or enforce in the culture of that time? And remember, we said, although the various implementations and punishments that we find in the Hebrew Bible don't apply to Christians today, and yet the ultimate principles do very much apply in their particular core values. And so what we see before us is three case laws. You'll notice that the first and the third both refer to parents, but sandwiched in between them is a law regarding kidnapping. Now that seems kind of strange. Why wouldn't you put the two parental verses together and then move the verse about kidnapping somewhere else? But perhaps there is a a kind of category that holds these three together, and perhaps there's a literary device being used that is meant to capture the attention of the reader. And I'd say it's yes to both of those observations. First of all, categorically, though these things seem to be different, yet they are grouped together in that they are all capital punishments for non-fatal crimes. So you see three capital punishments for non-fatal crimes. In the first, you have the instance of a person who strikes their mother or father. In the second case, you have the kidnapping of a person. Doesn't say that they're killed, but they're kidnapped. Therefore, it's the death penalty. In 17, a child who curses his mother or father. So again, you'll notice that the crimes themselves are not fatal crimes. They're not crimes of murder, and yet the capital punishment is there. So that's one way in which these three belong together. Now, in terms of literary structure, many scholars note that this is what they call a chiastic structure, and it's a way of structuring things so as to remember them. And the pattern is A, B, A. A is talking about fathers. B is something else. A, again, talking about parents. So we can see a literary structure there holding these together. Now this morning, I don't want to focus so much on that second case law, though I do want to mention one thing before we move on. Many people object to the Bible because they perceive today that it was used by slave masters in the Americas to keep slaves in their pace in their place and to justify their ownership of slaves to others who would decry their behavior. But I would like to point out that the Old Testament, if we were taking it seriously, and even though I admit it's difficult in a number of ways, as we've discussed already, it refers to servants and slaves, so seemingly it doesn't necessarily disapprove, at least in a broad historical sense. And yet, though we've addressed that earlier in some of our messages, I just want to say this morning that if this verse if verse 16 of Exodus 21 had actually been practiced, if people really believed the Bible and anyone who kidnapped another person was put to death, then friends, the Euro-American and Atlantic slave trade never would have got off the ground. Either it would not have existed or it certainly would not have thrived the way that it did because that is essentially what was taking place, that Africans were being kidnapped by slave traders and sold and brought over to foreign countries. So the Bible actually mandates the death penalty for people who did what they did in the slave trade. So just to highlight, no, you cannot use the Bible to justify slavery in the Americas. That is to be highly selective with your passages. It is to be ignorant of the history in which the Bible was written, and it is straight up to deny passages like the one in front of us that refute the very genesis of the Euro-American Atlantic slave trade. But this morning, as I said, I want to focus more on this issue of, of parenting and honoring respect and homes that are divided and how can they be united again. And I just wanted to say we are more divided literally in our houses now than ever. I pointed out in Pew Research, this is sad, friends. This should be a wake-up call. Christians, people who call themselves Christians anyway, I'll put it that way, professing Christians, are just as 
equal or likely to have divided homes as non-believers. And, and that is a problem, I believe. But nevertheless, we're now moving forward and we look to the Bible for help. And yet here in the Old Testament, we find kind of an opposite vision. And so let's unpack a little bit about what's going on here. Now, verses 15 and 17 are clearly the applications, the time-bound applications of the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? You will honor your father and mother. And remember, this is the first commandment with a promise. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's the first commandment with a promise. And so both of these are a time-bound application of that. So we're going we're gonna to argue that the principle honoring your father and mother still stands today, even though we don't live and don't want to live in ancient Israel. And yet, we're going to take a look at what's going on here and what's happening. So verse 15, and he who strikes his father and mother shall surely be put to death. Now, let me correct what is a very common misconception about this verse. Now, while the penalty is still, I would say, harsh from my perspective, and I'm glad we don't have to do this, but uh, some people get the idea of maybe a son or a daughter and they, you know, kind of slap their mom or dad once and, you know, not not so much doing physical damage, but it's disrespect. They, they slap their face. And so, okay, God says, hey, if your child slaps you or flicks you on the head, you, you have to kill them. I would like to point out that's probably not the case. The word strike here is the word nacha. Nacha in Hebrew is often translated smite, and it is very often used to translate the English word to kill, to murder. So to nacha, to smite, is either to kill or maybe what we would say a felony assault uh, with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. So I want to point out, this is not just, you know, a, a, a little smack, a little, little bit of, you know, physical challenge or, you know, the teenage child's like, I'm not obeying. I'm going down to the park. And they like try to push past their parent and they bump their parent. Oh, you struck me. I have to stone you now. Um, that's probably not what the text is saying. It means to strike, to smite, nacha, and probably means a child, probably a grown child who has done grievous bodily harm. They've They've beaten their parents, knocked them down on the ground, were hitting them, came at them with a knife, that kind of a thing. It, it's a probably a pretty serious kind of physical attack. So I just want to highlight that's the thing. And what it's saying is that this will absolutely not be permitted. Verse 17 says, And he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Uh, once again, interestingly, the Hebrew word for curse is not the normal word. It's not the normal when you normally when you talk about cursing or, you know, Job says, uh, Job's wife says, curse God and die. Different word. Normally curse is a different word. Here it's the Hebrew word kalal. And kalal is, is a broader term, and it, it means to, to make light of, to repudiate, and it probably is something that is an enduring attitude towards. That, that's the idea. The idea of I'm repudiating your authority and I'm rejecting you over a long period of time. There is even question of whether this refers to little children, this refers to grown children, or whatever the case might be. But most likely, it's not a, a one-time, hey, I, I cursed you one time in a fit of anger, and now, oh, I need to be stoned. It's probably an enduring kind of a thing, a, an utter repudiation of one's parental authority and the inherent value and honor that God bestows upon them. So just to Correct. I think both of these things are a little bit worse than they actually look on the surface in a typical English translation. I don't know if your translation has different words. Let us know in the comment section if you have a translation where maybe it points out some of the things I'm saying. One of the things you want to do to most modern Bibles have this, you have footnotes. And if you see a footnote in your study, I highly recommend you always look at those. Always look at those because many times they'll tell you some of the things that I'm saying. They'll let you know, oh, hey, we translated it curse because it's not inappropriate. But what you wouldn't know if you didn't look at our footnote is this is not the normal word for curse. It means uh, it's kalal. It means repudiator or, or something like that. So I highly encourage you look at those notes. 
Now, one of the things that I, I've suggested is that in addition to the biblical context, that is the canonical context, comparing scripture with scripture, which is always our primary framework for biblical interpretation, but it is important that we, we look at authorial intent. And while we acknowledge that there's always a divine author behind all of scripture, yet God, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, the divine author used human authors at real times and real places. And though God was free to, in some cases, dictate his word, he would also use the personality and the time and the place and the language and the style and the visual word pictures of that time and place. And so as we're seeking to, to be as clear about scripture, especially when we're going to go live our lives this isn't Shakespeare where if we disagree on an interpretation, oh, well, everything goes on as it was yesterday. No, if we get biblical interpretation wrong, people are, are living by this book. They're believing it and they're, they're living by it, whether they're accepting it or rejecting it. This is an authoritative book. It is the most authoritative book in the world, which means, man, there is a lot at stake in interpreting the Bible correctly. And so we want to probe uh, firstly, the biblical canonical context, but also the historical context, trying to look at the human author's world so we can understand what's going on. And one of the things that I've said is that we want to look at what was going on around ancient Israel's neighbors. And the reason for that is it can help us to, to get some clarity on things that are just confusing and we don't know what that idea is. We don't know what that word is. And so we want to look around at the neighbors and see if we can figure out from that what it is. And another very critical thing for Old Testament interpretation, particularly for ethics, is trajectory. In other words, even though we, uh, including myself, look back on this passage and I'm and I'm like, thank God, you know, there's no capital punishment for for children doing these things because that's not good. Although I affirm the value of honoring your mother and father, but one of the things we want to know is rather than just this black and white picture of oh. Uh, Israel did it the way we want to do it, so we'll accept it. No, they didn't do it, so we'll throw it out. It has no value. One of the things we can do is get a look at trajectory. In other words, in comparison to ancient Israel's neighbors, what direction is Israel going? Is Israel becoming more violent than their neighbors around them? Is Israel becoming more or less respectful to parents than their neighbors around them? That's something we can look at. And one of the things I pointed out to you before is that even though when a modern person comes to the, to the Old Testament and you see a number of things that they do capital punishment for, and that's certainly because we only do it for one in the United States and even that hardly at all. The only thing that warrants the death penalty in the United States is murder with special circumstances. So not even just murder, but murder with special circumstances. And more and more in our culture today, we're not even doing that. Many states have outlawed it, and even the ones that do very often uh, don't do it. People end up on death row and just stay there until they die in prison. So keep in mind, we've been conditioned by that, uh, for good or for bad. It just is what it is. We've been conditioned by that. So when we come to the Old Testament, we're shocked at the number of things that you can be put to death for. Now, so from our perspective, the trajectory is, oh, the Bible is just getting more and more violent. If we were to follow the Bible, we'd become a barbaric society. But here's the irony. If you employ the technique that I'm suggesting to you, that rather than judging the Bible by our standards, the, the is ancient Israelite culture, we look at it in its context. And what you find out is the opposite. Israel is becoming a less and less violent culture than the neighbors around them. And that's important to note. However, however, that's not always the case. While I'll point out that in ancient Israel, you don't get put to death for, for stealing property over property issues, where in Code of Hammurabi, actually, if you steal something, you could get put to death for stealing an object. In some of the pagan law codes, stuff is worth more than people. In the Hebrew Bible, people are always worth more than stuff. Uh, for example, there's a weird code in the Code of Hammurabi. If a man sees his neighbor's house on fire and he goes over with good intentions to put out the fire, but then while putting out fire, he sees something in his neighbor's house that he wants, then that man shall be thrown into the fire and he shall burn to death and die. And you're like, 
What in the world kind of thing is that? So the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament says, no, that's not okay. People are worth more than things. The punishment does not fit the crime. Um, by the way, a lot of people get the wrong idea about lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and they think, oh, that brutal vengeance. Actually, it's not about cold, brutal vengeance. It's about equity. It's about the punishment should fit the crime. That's the idea. But all that to say, friends, I'm not going to gloss over that there are times, like the one before us this morning, where the where the penalty for the crime in the in the Old Testament is greater. It's greater, more severe than Israel's neighbors. And you know what one of those instances is? Honor and respect for parents. And there's two ways in which the Old Testament exalts the honor for parents more so than Israel's neighbors. There's two ways. Number one, if we use the cone of Hammurabi as kind of our measuring tape, the first thing that jumps out to you is the fact that in the Code of Hammurabi, only honor for the father matters. Listen to that, friends. In the Code of Hammurabi, the pagan neighbors... Only the Father, only honoring the Father matters. But notice how in our text before us this morning, it says in verse 15, he who strikes his father or his mother. Notice how in comparison to Israel's pagan neighbors, the Bible exalts the mother right alongside the father. Honoring the mother is placed on the same level as the father. So the trajectory of the Bible, far from being this, this sexist book that many people think it is today, in its time and place, it is raising the honor, the level of respect, for the mother alongside the father. So that's the first thing that you point out. The second thing is that the death penalty was not enforced for dishonoring a father. If a child cursed their father in the Code of Hammurabi, their hands would be cut off. Now that's that's pretty brutal, certainly, and, and I, I, I think the child would not want to disrespect his parents out of self-interest, if not necessarily good character. And yet, at the same time, as barbaric and brutal as that is, that's much less than the death penalty. So not only do we see that God is exalting the place of the mother alongside the father, but we see that the penalty for dishonoring one's parents, whether it's verse 15, naha, to smite, to strike, to inflict grievous bodily harm, or verse 17, kalal, to repudiate and reject and dishonor parents over a length of time, rejecting their responsibility towards their parents, the Bible is elevating it. It is exalting it. Now, this is, once again, very hard for modern people to grasp because we think largely of these commandments in individualistic terms. We think of them in very personal terms. We think of them even in terms of uh, emotional terms. In other words, even Christian parents today, and I've encountered this through pastoring and even being a Christian teacher, is that many parents think that they set the level of honor and respect. And, and if they don't if they don't want the respect, they don't need it, and they're like, oh, my son and daughter are dishonoring me, but I it doesn't bother me that much. So I'm just I'm just gonna let it go and and I don't want them to dislike. They think it's it's they can just lower it and there's not gonna be a problem. But friends, in the Old Testament and in many cultures in the world today, the main issue is not whether you're okay with it or not. It doesn't really have anything to do with that. It is simply the fact that if every parent does their home that way, if every parent allows themselves to be dishonored and disrespected at all times and always without making any kind of difference, they allow their children to beat them, attack them, disrespect them, repudiate them, then the entire culture falls apart. In other words, it's not only the parent's duty to teach their children to honor and respect them out of fear of the Lord and for their own walk, which is part of it, but it's for the good of society. In other words, teaching your own children to respect you is your contribution to the culture in which you live. And a failure to do that is actually an attack on your neighbor. 
Listen to what Jewish conservative commentator Dennis Prager said in a book he wrote called The Ten Commandments, Still the Best Moral Code. He said this, quote, A father and a mother who are not honored are essentially adult peers of their children. They are not parents. No generation knows better than ours the terrible consequences of growing up without a father. Fatherless boys are far more likely to grow up and commit violent crime, mistreat women, and act out against society in every other way. Girls who do not have a father to honor and hopefully to love as well are more likely to seek the wrong men and to be promiscuous at an early age. If you build a society in which children honor their parents, your society will long survive. But the corollary is, a society in which children do not honor their parents is doomed to self-destruction. In our time, this connection between honoring parents and maintaining civilization is not widely recognized. So, friends, what we have to understand in honoring our parents, including when they're older, in teaching our children to honor their parents, is not merely your sense of respect, your sense of value, your sense of worth, but you are teaching them about God. You are teaching them about God's authority. You are preparing them. You are providing them an authoritative framework by which they can understand God. And so a failure to teach that and account for that is not only to attack your family and your own home, but it is actually an attack on society. Because houses divided against themselves, no nation can withstand. And that is where the United States of America is today. Sun Tzu, in his famous book, The Art of War, was careful to say, never interrupt your enemy while he's destroying himself. America's neighbors don't really need to attack us right now because we are attacking ourselves from within. The very fabric of our culture is falling apart and being destroyed, and it's not China or Russia that's doing it, it's Americans. It's people who refuse to honor the Lord and to honor the Lord by teaching their children to honor and respect authority in the home. And as I've said, this is a problem not just for non-believers at large, though that's certainly true, but even Christians themselves. Now, if we start to ask ourselves, okay, but, but why is this? Why? How did we get here? How, how could we go from a culture that originally grew out of the Bible and looked back on the Ten Commandments and had passages like Exodus 21, 15 through 17, how did we get from there to where we are today? And the answer is that it is very complex, there are a number of things that have taken place that have contributed to where we are today. Let me just name a few. First of all, we can say that there's actually a positive movement away from the abusive parents of the past. Okay, so there's, there's a good movement, and I want to acknowledge that before I get onto the criticisms. There's a good movement away from abusive parents of the past. In other words, even though now we're in this place of permissive parenting where parents aren't parenting anymore, they're being buddies with their kids, they just want to please them and they want them to, to say how wonderful they are to everyone, even though they're lying to them about God and not teaching them about human nature and of sin and of salvation. But part of that is a reaction to the opposite problem. And this is the way history seems to go, friends. It seems to go from one extreme on the left to an extreme on the right to back to an extreme on the left. It, it's a pendulum of culture that seems to swing. And the problem is that the truth is so often somewhere in the middle. While it's true in the past that some parents use their power and authority to hurt their children, to not teach them about God, to violate 
that authority and to use the the command to honor in a in a way to hurt their children and obviously from a christian perspective we want to say that that is terrible and that is wrong and we're thankful that we've moved away from that we're very thankful so there's partially a good thing moving away from some of the uh, abusive things that have happened in the past but as i said unfortunately we've moved so far to the other side we are destroying ourselves. A few of the reasons can be, again, number one is it's an overcorrective. Seeing as how things can go bad the other way in an authoritarian kind of sense, we've made the opposite error. And friends, if that's us, we need to kind of come back to the middle. Say, yes, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be these authoritarian, cold-hearted, mean parents that don't care. But we also don't want to be parents who don't care in the opposite direction by providing no boundaries, by not teaching them and preparing them to understand God's sin and salvation. We need to come back somewhere to the middle. For many parents, to be perfectly honest, it is a way of alleviating guilt apart from Christ. Many parents feel guilty. Uh, as I quoted to you, we have more single-parent households in the United States than anywhere else in the world. And one of the things that I've encountered is that oftentimes single parents feel very, very guilty. They feel guilty that, oh gosh, you know, I, I, I divorced your mom or divorced your dad or, or gosh, I had you when I was 15 and I, I was... I was my head was in a different place when I was 15 and that's not where I am now. And, and, and I feel guilty about that. And so I want to try to make up for this in a way. And, and unfortunately, though, though there's something there, it's like, yes, I, I understand. But you can almost try to atone for your own sin. And of course, Christianity says you can't atone for your own sin. Only Jesus can do that. But some parents are trying to atone for their own sin. And so they, they feel like if I say no to anything they want to do, uh, then, then, they can, uh, then, uh, then I feel guilty. And by the way, as kids get older, when they hit the teenage years, oh my goodness, do they know how to manipulate the guilt button? I mean, just pressing it over and over and over, using that guilt. Kids are smart, teenagers are smart, and they know how to take your guilt and the fact that maybe life wasn't perfect and it wasn't the easiest situation and to manipulate you to no end so that you just kind of let go. For others, it's just pride and ego. You don't want your kids saying to anyone else, oh, I don't love my parent, or they don't let me do anything. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm not allowed to watch all the movies. I'm not allowed to get all the apps on my phone. I'm not allowed to have internet access without uh, parental consent. And, oh, and, and parents, honestly, and that word gets around faster now than ever with the internet, and it can go around, oh, your parents a joy kill, or you're not fun, or look at, or you're compared to other parents. All the other parents let their kids do this. Mom, what's wrong with you? And you're like, oh, well, I want you to like me. So friends, there are a million different ways superficially as to how we get sucked into participating in dividing houses that divide a nation. But all of that actually pales in comparison to what is the real root of the problem. And the real root of the problem always was and is the presence and reality of sin in the human heart. The problem is that sin means, friends, children naturally, this is the Bible, children naturally do not want to honor their mother and father. Most children, that's blatantly obvious. But let's say, maybe you've got one of those really good kids, right? They, they do want to honor and respect you. Just wait until you really start teaching them the Bible and you teach them what to do for the reasons God tells them to do it, and the sin will come out. Remember that. They might seem compliant on the surface, but self-interest is always involved. And once you bring the law of God, and remember the law is like a mirror. It shows you, it reveals. Paul in Romans says that when the law came in, then sin abounded and I died. So it's actually by teaching them the Bible and finding them pushing back against the things of God that you can really start to see the sin there. So remember, parents, that you've been given these God-given roles, that the great thing you must do in your life as a Christian parent is teach them about God. That was one of the fundamental principles at work in parenting in ancient Israel, is teach them the law of God. Just as God is a creator, you are a co-creator with God as a parent, bringing a child into the world. 
And even for parents or or foster parents or step parents who might not be the co-creators and yet they are co-sustainers. They are raising them, providing for them food and clothing and shelter. So just as God is a sustainer, a parent, step parent, foster parent is a co-sustainer with God. And redeemer, we can't redeem our kids from sins. We have to remember that. But what we can do, it's teach them of the redeemer. We can teach them that they have sin and that it isn't just a matter of practical, pragmatic respect in the home because we want things to be a certain way, but rather it all comes down to knowing God and being forgiven by him. And so we teach our children the knowledge of Christ, the redeemer. And we also teach them through exercising of discipline that God is a judge. And he has delegated some of that judging to parents to be able to say, this is right and this is wrong. This is the law of the home. And if you break that, there is penalties for those things. And so you see, friends, what is at stake is ultimately the gospel story. Parents are partnering with God as co-creators, co-sustainers, co-redeemers, co-judges. And yet what's interesting is when we get to the New Testament, we find that Jesus presents a radical challenge. In other words, Christianity is not just an excuse to make our houses a little nicer and and make the country a little bit more of a pleasant place to be. This is ultimately about worship. And the way to get on back on track, friends, is not to look at the past. It's not to look at the past and say, oh, there was a golden era and we just need to get back to that. No. The Bible says the goal is Jesus. The way forward with us is not to look back to the distant past, but to look forward to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because listen to this, the way to recover parenting and raising children is not to obsess over parenting and raising children, but rather it is to focus and lay hold of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter than me is not worthy of me. Again, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Friends, you might even think, well, wait a minute, coming to Jesus, and he's saying, we've got to love them, we've got to love our children, parents have to love their children less than Jesus. Children have to love their parents less than Jesus. Jesus even used strong language that we have to hate our father, mother, sister, brothers, wife and children, or we're not ultimately worthy of him. What does that mean? Is Jesus bad for the home? Is Jesus bad for parenting? No, friends. Jesus is rescuing us from the sinfulness that has plagued both parenting and being children in this world. By presenting us Jesus Christ as our greatest good, our transcendent value, we are given a higher value and we are given a higher power. The ultimate goal for parents is not to please their children, but to please Jesus. By pleasing Jesus, you will raise your children rightly. And you will also be reminded that your children are sinners in need of a Savior. And that the best thing you can do is not cover over their sin and pretend it didn't happen, but point out their sin and point to their need for a Savior. What children need to realize is that regardless of whether you had a great parent or a bad parent, there is sin that is in us. There is sin that we have, that we were born with it, that we were inclined to various forms of it, perhaps different than somebody else, but inclined nonetheless in common with all human beings. And children have to realize, I have this natural tendency to sin, and I want to push back against authority. And it's not just because mom and dad aren't perfect, or they got divorced, or they're separated, or anything else. It's because I have sin in my heart. And ultimately, I need to honor my parents, not just because they're great people, not because they're always there, not because they're doing always what they ought to do, but because I love God. I honor him. And I simply see honoring my parents as a way of loving Jesus more than them. And so, friends, that is the Christian way forward. It is not to make an idol out of parenting or idol out of children. Rather, it is to worship Jesus. And it is to see that perhaps one of the greatest callings you could ever have in your life 
is raising children and being a child, even if you're grown, honoring your mother and father as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So where do we go from here? Friends, I believe that the basic issue is understanding how each and every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I know there's probably not one person out there today who can't admit that as a child growing up, you never sinned against your parents, regardless of whether your mother was there or it was your father or, or they were really good or they weren't good or whatever. At some point, we can confess we've sinned and fallen short of the standard to honor our mother and father. I don't think there's any parent out there or step-parent or foster parent that hasn't fallen short in some particular way. And friends, the answer is, is not to try to uh, pretend our sin isn't there. It's not to try to atone for it and allow guilt to be manipulated by people as is so often done today. But rather, it is for all of us to see the depths of our own sin and depravity and to see the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to see in his call to love him more than father or mother or even our children, that the call to love him more is the way to best fulfill the commandment to honor our mother and father and as parents to teach our children to do the same. It is for the love of Jesus. It is not merely for the love and affection we have for people. It is not to please the world. It is not just to get better demographics and make society a little bit better. It is for the glory of God. And friends, that is why you are alive today. That is why you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is to bring glory and honor to God. Glory is not for us. It is to God. And in through this vocation of parenting and giving honor to our parents, we have been given an opportunity as Christians to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in word, but also in deed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this opportunity to hear from your most holy word, to hear the, the morals and standards of scripture that we know are good for society. And yet, Lord, you also probe deeper into the depths of the human heart and of the human mind. You know our motives are tainted and complicated, Lord. We know it can be so difficult and we can be doing so many things for so many reasons. And this morning, it is my simple prayer that we would come back to this one thing, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Lord, I just pray that you would forgive us of all of our sins as, as children growing up in this world. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us all of our sins as parents in this world. And Lord, I just pray that we who have the opportunity in any way to teach children to honor their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Help us to do so. Help us not to be conformed to this world. Help us not to be pleasers of men rather than pleasers of God. Lord, have mercy on our country. Have mercy on our culture. Lord, I pray for a healing of the houses that are divided across this land. Lord, as we look at the many social problems out there in the world and on the news, Lord, I believe that this is the heart of the matter. I believe number one, sinners need to come to Jesus as their Savior. And number two, households need to be united in the love of God. And so, Father, I pray you would begin with us, that we, along with the prophet Isaiah, would say to your call, here I am, send me. Lord, send a blessing out on my brothers and sisters today and use us to make a difference for you and to bring glory to your name. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. All right, friends, for those that would like to continue this morning's worship with tithes and offerings, there are two ways for you, you to do that. Uh, number one, you can go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and there's a tab up at the top. It says giving, and you're able to give there using your debit or credit card. For those of you that would like to mail in a check or money order or cashier's check, you can do so to our church mailing address, which is 27762. Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com.
A few announcements before we go. Again, Wednesday night, we have a midweek Bible study. We're currently going through the book of 2 Corinthians. It's an amazing and very encouraging book. I highly encourage you. Stay involved. Stay connected, friends. Make it a priority uh, to attend. I know there can be a drift. Uh, people go, well, it's online, so I don't really need to do it. Or, oh, I will, but I don't need to do it at that time. And I, I just want to share this simple thing. Keep the Word of God a priority. Keep hearing and being taught the Word of God a priority. If that means, hey, I need to stick to the time, I need to stick to 10 a.m. and 7 p.m., then, then do it because there, there's always a spiritual drift and we can come up with all kinds of excuses as to why we're doing it, but friends, we need to take responsibility and say God's Word is a priority and I'm an intent. So I just want to, that's a loving, gentle encouragement. Don't drift. Make sure you continue to join us in our studies. Um, great news. Next Sunday, we're going to have our in-person outdoor gathering in San Juan Capistrano at 1030 a.m. So looking forward to that. Again, we'll be posting more information on our website about that this week. And we'll also be sending out an email with that information as well for those of you on our email list. So we'll be doing that. Again, we're excited to announce that beginning on Easter Sunday, which is coming up very quickly, which is April 6th, I believe, for Sunday of April, we're moving to bi-weekly in-person services. And Lord willing, our goal is to be able to resume indoor services in the near future. So keep us in prayer for that. Keep us in prayer for the weather, for our outdoor services, and also keep us in prayer as we seek a proper indoor location that will be a blessing to our church and in particular our children's ministry. So if you have any questions, Bible questions, prayer requests, you can email us today at information at imagechurchoc.com. That's information at imagechurchoc.com. Uh, also, we're going to be launching some new community groups. We already have one launched in San Juan Capistrano. We have another one coming up in San Clemente and another one in Tustin, Santa Ana area. And so we're going to have those leaders come forward on February 28th, next Sunday. We're going to pray over them. We're going to announce them to you and you're going to have the opportunity to meet with them. And we're going to locate times and dates that are going to work best for everyone. So I encourage you uh, to get involved with those as well. And let me close with this prayer of blessing. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us again. Don't forget to like our post and share it. We want to be able to encourage people, encourage one another. If you know any family members or friends that missed today's message, make sure you let them know and share that with them. Again, God bless you all. Thank you so much for joining with us and look forward to seeing you all again very soon. Have a blessed week in the Lord.